Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Welcome to Real Paranormal Activity, the network. Entertainment you'll enjoy. You are listening to an RPA production, where people gather. Ladies and gentlemen, Real Paranormal Activity is proud to present Terry's Mysterious Moments. Welcome to Terry's Mysterious Moments, Season 3. Thank you for joining me on this journey into the odd, the weird, the strange. Hope you'll enjoy it. Now, on with the show. Howdy, y'all. This is Terry from Texas. This is Terry's Mysterious Moments. In 1587, a small colony was founded on an island off the eastern coast of North America. The settlement would have been the first permanent English colony in the world had the settlers not disappeared owing to unknown circumstances. The lost colony of Roanoke is one of the most notorious mysteries in American history. The cryptic clues left at the abandoned settlement and the lack of any concrete evidence make it the focus of wild speculation and theory. On August 18th of 1587, Virginia Dare was born in this Roanoke colony, making her the first English child born in the Americas. In the settlement's difficult founding year, its mayor, John White left for England to request resources and manpower. He returned three years later because England was in a war, only to find the settlement empty. His wife, his child, and his grandchild, the first English-born child in the Americas, were vanished. The word Croatoan and the letters C-R-O carved into trees within the colony's borders were the only signs pointing to an explanation. Despite the clues, the returning crew was unable to search for the missing colonists. A storm approached just as they came upon the desolate settlement, forcing them to turn back for England. On the basis of the mysterious tree carving, the nearby Croatoan Island, now known as Hatteras Island, is the location to which many believe the colonists moved. At the time of the colony's founding, the Hatteras Indians occupied the island, and a popular theory supposes that the colonists joined the group of Native Americans to overcome their lack of resources and knowledge of the land. A supposed piece of evidence for this claim is the existence of carvings in stones 
that were purportedly made by Eleanor Dare, Governor White's daughter and Virginia's mother. These stones, often called the Dare Stones, funny how they named them that, contain written stories that tell the fates of the colonists and personal anecdotes from Dare to her father. Though they are largely believed to be a hoax and a forgery, there is some academic belief that at least one of the stones may be authentic. Since 1998, the Croatoan Project has researched and provided archaeological evidence to back up the theory that the colonists moved to be with, or at least interacted with, the Hatteras tribe. Artifacts and objects found within Croatoan villages that only English settlers had owned or had made at the time have solidified the connection between the two groups. But despite this evidence, and many other theories, it is likely that no definitive answer to the mystery of the colonist's disappearance will ever be found. The disappearance of old Owen Parfit from his sister's front porch in the English countryside isn't nearly as famous as, say, the disappearance of Amelia Earhart in 1937, but it's even more mysterious. In the summer of 1763, or thereabouts, accounts differ on the exact year, while living with his sister in the town of Shepton Mallet, the paralyzed 60-year-old Parfit simply disappeared. He couldn't have walked off, but even the farm workers in the field across the road from the porch where Parfit was sitting didn't see anyone come or go. One moment he was there, the next poof, and when people go poof, it always causes a mystery. Owen Parfit had lived a wild life by anybody's standards. He told tales of his youth that featured piracy and great battles and numerous women. Most people were skeptical of the old Coots stories, and he undoubtedly knew that, but it didn't stop him from recounting his glory days nonetheless. By the 1760s, Owen was in his 60s, and people said his wild living had caught up with him. He was now a virtual cripple, living with his elderly sister in Shepton Mallet, a town in southwest England. For a man who was used to moving freely from one adventure to another, the paralysis must have come as a heavy burden. He would have one final adventure, though, that would capture the attention of Shepton Mallet and neighboring villages. The date is sketchy. Some sources claim the following took place in June of 1763, while others place it in 1768. What is known is that on a warm evening, Owen Parfit wanted to sit outside. Due to his virtual immobility, he needed the assistance of his sister and a neighbor to carry him out to a chair on the front porch. When his sister went back into the house, Owen was sitting placidly in the chair. Across the road, a very short distance away, several farm workers were laboring within easy earshot of Owen. Certainly, if someone had approached him where he sat on the porch, someone would have seen or heard something. But nobody saw nothing, and nobody heard nothing. A storm was coming that evening, so Owen's sister came out onto the porch to bring him back inside. But Owen weren't no longer in the chair. 
knowing that he could not have moved anywhere by himself. She asked the farm workers if they had seen someone come get him, but none of them had. Panicking, the sister enlisted the help of the farm workers and neighbors to search the area. It wasn't possible Owen could have left on his own, so it would seem that he would be easily found. As odd as it sounds, they never found a trace of the crippled man. Over time, neighbors passed along tales about what had happened to him, including that he had been taken by the devil, a real popular one back in those days, or that pirates had carried him off in order to get him to tell the location of buried treasure. Owen's incredible disappearance was never solved and became a popular piece of local lore. The story would eventually fade, but became local news again in 1813 when some routine construction in Shepton Mallet unearthed a human skeleton. Everybody jumped to the conclusion that it must be Owen's remain, and theories were put forward as to how Owen's body had come to such an undignified end. The medical community nipped the gossip in the bud, however, when it stated that the skeleton was that of a young female. Another episode of construction in the area in 1933 shed no new light on Owen's fate. He remains one of Southwest England's most intriguing mysteries. You know, when my time comes, I want to go poof and become a mystery. You ever heard of Ambrose Bierce? Ambrose Bierce was an American short story writer, a journalist, a poet, and a Civil War veteran. He wrote realistically of the terrible things he had seen in the Civil War, wherein he had received what is now referred to as a traumatic brain injury. He wrote such stories as An Occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge, A Horseman in the Sky, One of the Missing, and Chickamauga. His grimly realistic cycle of 25 war stories has been called the greatest anti-war document in American literature. Bierce is the subject of a real-life mystery, though, that will likely never be solved. One day in 1913, when Bierce was in his 70s, he told his friends and family he was going to Mexico to join Pancho Villa's revolution. After sending a few letters from Mexico, Bierce was never seen or heard from again. Some speculate he was killed in action, while others believe that he may have committed suicide. Barbara Newhall Follett was an American child prodigy novelist. Her first novel, The House Without Windows, was published in January of 1927, when she was 12 years old. Her next novel, The Voyage of the Norman D, received critical acclaim when she was 14. Finishing her first novel at the age of eight, Barbara Newhall Follett had written four books by the time she turned 18, but her literary success came at a price. She never had a childhood. In late 1933, Follett married Nickerson Rogers. The couple traveled throughout Europe and the U.S. before eventually settling in Brookline, Massachusetts. The marriage was initially happy, but Follett soon came to believe that Rogers was being unfaithful to her and became depressed. According to her husband, on December 7th of 1939, Follett left their apartment after a quarrel 
with $30 in her pocket, never to be seen again. Rogers did not report Follett's disappearance to police for two weeks, claiming that he was waiting for her to return. Four months after notifying police, he requested a missing persons bulletin be issued. As the bulletin was issued under Follett's married name of Rogers, it went largely unnoticed by the media. The media did not learn of her disappearance until 1966. Really? Missing for nearly 30 years and the newspapers didn't know? In 1952, 13 years after Follett disappeared, her mother Helen began insisting that Brookline police investigate the matter more thoroughly. Helen had become suspicious of Rogers after she discovered that he made little effort to find his wife. In a letter to Rogers, she wrote, All of this silence on your part looks as if you had something to hide concerning Barbara's disappearance. You cannot believe that I shall sit idle during my last few years and not make whatever effort I can to find out whether Barr is alive or dead, whether perhaps she is in some institution suffering from amnesia or nervous breakdown. Follett's body was never found and no evidence indicating or excluding foul play was ever produced. The date and circumstances of her death have never been established. Well, of course not. If her body wasn't found, can't establish a date of death. Interesting story, though. On October 3, 1955, the merchant vessel M.V. Joyita departed Samoa for the Tokelau Islands. A month later, 30 days give or take. She was found drifting in the South Pacific, 600 miles off her course. All her passengers, crew, and cargo were gone. Some believe that the ship was a victim of piracy. Another theory has it that the boat was taking on water because it was listing when it was discovered. The ship was in very poor condition with corroded pipes and a radio which, while functional, had a range of only about two miles because of faulty wiring. The extreme buoyancy of the ship made sinking nearly impossible. Investigators were puzzled as to why the crew had not remained on board and waited for help. The 69-foot wooden ship was built in 1931 as a luxury yacht by the Wilmington Boat Works in Los Angeles for movie director Roland West, who named the ship for his wife, actress Jewel Carmenil, Joyita in Spanish meaning Little Jewel. In 1936, the ship was sold and registered to Milton E. Beacon. During this period, she made numerous trips south to Mexico and to the 1939-1940 Golden Gate International Exposition in San Francisco. During part of this time, Chester Mills was the skipper of the vessel. The ship's hull was constructed of two-inch thick cedar on oak frames. She was 69 feet long with a beam of 17 feet and a draft of 7 feet 6 inches. Her net tonnage was 47 tons and her gross tonnage approximately 70 tons. She had tanks for 2,500 U.S. gallons of water and 3,000 U.S. gallons of diesel fuel. In October of 1941, 
Just before the attack on Pearl Harbor, Joyita was acquired by the United States Navy and taken to Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, where she was outfitted as a yard patrol boat, YP-108. The Navy used her to patrol the Big Island of Hawaii until the end of World War II. In 1943, she ran aground and was heavily damaged, but because the Navy was in such need of ships, she was repaired. At this point, new pipework was made from galvanized iron instead of copper or brass. In 1946, the ship was surplus to Navy requirements and most of her equipment was removed. In 1948, Joyita was sold to the firm of Lewis Brothers. At this point, cork lining was added to the ship's hull along with refrigeration equipment. The ship had two gray marine diesel engines providing 225 horsepower and two extra diesel engines for generators. In 1950, William Tavares became the owner. However, he had little use for the vessel and sold it in 1952 to a Dr. Catherine Luomala, a professor at the University of Hawaii. She chartered the boat to her friend, Captain Thomas H. Dusty Miller, a British-born sailor living in Samoa. Miller used the ship as a trading and fishing charter boat. About 5 a.m. on October 3, 1955, Joyita left Samoa's Apia Harbor, bound for the Tokelau Islands, about 270 miles away. The boat had been scheduled to leave on the noon tide the previous day, but her departure was delayed because her port engine clutch failed. Joyita eventually left Samoa on one engine. She was carrying 16 crew members and 9 passengers, including a government official, a doctor, Alfred Andy Dennis Parsons, a World War II surgeon on his way to perform an amputation. There was a copra buyer. A copra is coconut. It's what's on the inside of the hard shell of the coconut, the brown and white mixed together. That's copra. A copra buyer and two children. Her cargo consisted of medical supplies, timber, 80 empty 45-gallon oil drums, and various foodstuffs. The voyage was expected to take between 41 and 48 hours. Two days on the open water, okay. She was scheduled to return with a cargo of copra. Joyita was scheduled to arrive in the Tokelau Islands on 5 October. On 6 October, a message from Fakeofo Port reported that the ship was overdue. No ship or land-based operator reported receiving a distress signal from the crew. A search and rescue mission was launched, and from 6 to 12 October, Sunderlands of the Royal New Zealand Air Force covered a probability area of nearly 100,000 square miles of ocean, but no sign of Joyita or any of her passengers or crew was found. Five weeks later, on 10 November, Gerald Douglas, captain of the merchant ship Tuvalu, en route from Suva to Funafuti, sighted Joyita more than 600 miles west from her scheduled route, drifting north of Vanua Levu. The ship was partially submerged and listing heavily. Her port deck, that's the left side rail, was underwater, and there was no trace of any of the passengers or crew. 
four tons of cargo were also missing. The recovery party noted that the radio was discovered tuned to 2,182 kHz, the International Marine Radio Telephone Distress Channel. Barnacle growth high above the usual waterline on the port side showed that the Joyita had been listing heavily for some time. I don't know how fast barnacles grow on a ship or get attached to a ship or whatever they get, however they get on the ship, but in a month's time, if they have very many at all, I'd be surprised. There was some damage to the superstructure. Her flying bridge had been smashed away and the deck house had light damage and broken windows. A canvas awning had been rigged on top of the deck house behind the bridge. Joyita carried a dinghy and three Carly life rafts, but all were missing. She did not carry enough life jackets for everyone on board. The starboard engine was found to be covered by mattresses, while the port engine's clutch was still partially disassembled, showing that the vessel was still running on only one engine. An auxiliary pump had been rigged in the engine room, mounted on a plank of wood, slung between the main engines. However, it had not been connected. The radio on board was tuned to the International Distress Channel, but the equipment was not working because a break was found in the cable between the set and the antenna. The cable had been painted over, which obscured the break in the, in the wiring. This would have limited the range of the radio to about two miles. The electric clocks on board, which were wired into the vessel's generator, had stopped at 10.25 and the switches for the cabin lighting and navigation lights were on, implying that whatever had occurred happened at night. The ship's logbook, sextant, mechanical chronometer, and other navigational equipment, as well as the firearms Miller kept in the boat, were missing. A doctor's bag was found on deck containing a stethoscope, a scalpel, and four links of blood-stained bandages. There was still fuel in Joita's tanks. From the amount used, it was calculated she made some 243 miles before the vessel was abandoned, probably within 50 miles of Tokelau. The leak had probably started after 9 p.m. on the second night of the voyage, with nine hours of darkness ahead. Although Joita was found with her bilges and lower decks flooded, her hull was sound. When she was moored back in harbor at Suva, investigators heard the sound of water entering the vessel. It was found that a pipe in the raw water circuit of the engine's cooling system had failed due to galvanic corrosion, allowing water to flood the bilges. The first the crew would have known about the leak was when the water rose above the engine room floorboards, by which time it would have been nearly impossible to locate the leak. Also, the bilge pumps were not fitted with strainers and had become clogged with debris, meaning that it would have been very difficult to pump the water out. Joyita is sometimes referred to as the Mary Celeste of the South Pacific and has been the subject of several books and documentaries offering explanations that range from rational and conventional to supernatural and paranormal. Numerous hypotheses for the disappearance of Joyita's crew and passengers have been advanced. Many were circulated at the time of the event, and several others have been put forward since. 
Given the fact that the hull of Joyita was sound and her design almost made her unsinkable, a main concern of investigators was determining why the passengers and crew did not stay on board if the events were simply triggered by the flooding of the engine room. In February of 1979, five friends departed the coast of Maui. I'm going to stay out of the Pacific. Five friends departed the coast of Maui for a fun day of fishing on a small boat called the Sarah Joe and motored into one of Hawaii's worst storms on record. When they failed to return, a massive search was conducted to no avail. Sad, but not that surprising when it comes to maritime tragedy. Things happen. Then things got weird. Ten years later, the Sarah Joe was found wrecked on the coast of one of the Marshall Islands, next to the grave of what turned out to be one of the five men. How did he get there? Who buried him? And where is that person now who could help explain this mystery? We'll probably never know. Well, that's the show for this week. I hope you enjoyed it. I thank you for being along for the ride and be with me next week as we come back with another story or another group of stories for Terry's Mysterious Moments. I want to remind you that on Mondays, Aaron Hunter brings you Real Paranormal Activity, the podcast, which is listener stories that Aaron tells, mostly ghost stories. And on Tuesdays, we have Aaron Frail with Aaron's Horror Show, where he reviews horror movies, different books, uh, things that he's written. And on Wednesdays, it's me, Terry's Mysterious Moments, with me, Terry from Texas, where we cover just about anything you can think of. And on alternating Thursdays, or every other Thursday, however you want to look at that, we have Patrick Sean Jones with the Sandman Lullaby. We also have video productions on the first Friday of the month from Full Dark Productions, from The Witching Hour, and from Unexplained Cases. Also remember that you can go to your app store, whether you have an Apple or an Android, you can go to your app store, look for the RPA app. It's a black square with a blue eye right in the middle of it. You can't miss it. And you can download that app, install it into the device you uh, listen to the programs on, and that way you will not have to go looking for the programs. They'll be right there. Do that. It'll be a lot easier for you to get to the stories. That's about it. I hope everybody has a good week. Thanks for being here. Bye-bye.